First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. First Peter 1, 13 through 16. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, the subject before me in this address is a very critical one also for growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Cultivating holiness. You see, the godly farmer who plows his field and sows his seed and fertilizes and cultivates is acutely aware that in the final analysis, he can't make one seed to grow. He has no ability to bring life or germination to that seed. No ability to bring the rain to fall or the sun to shine. And yet he pursues his task with diligence, doesn't he? Looking to God for blessing and using the means of God's provision, which in the way of God's blessing will bear fruit. Similarly, the Christian life is like a cultivated garden in order to produce fruits of holy living to God. 300 times in the New Testament alone, God says to us in one way or another, be holy. You see it here in 1 Peter 1 powerfully, be holy for I am holy. 1 Thessalonians, God hath not called us to uncleanness, but he's called us to holiness. Hebrews 12, follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. So in this, this session, we want to focus on this calling. What, what is the calling, and how do you really practically, hands-on, go about, in dependence on God, cultivating holiness, which in turn matures your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ so that you grow in him. Well, I have four thoughts I want to look with you at. This will be a little more topical than exegetical in this address. First, the call to cultivate holiness. The call. Second, what we must cultivate. Third, how we must do it. And fourth, encouragements for cultivating holiness. So, the topic, cultivating holiness. And we'll look at the basics, four basics. The call to do so, what we must do, how we must do it, and encouragements for doing it. Holiness is a noun that relates to the adjective holy and to the verb sanctify, which means to make holy. 
Interestingly, in the Dutch language, the word for sanctification is heilig making, holy making. That's what sanctification is, holy making. In both biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek, the word holy means to be separated and set apart for God. Separated and set apart for God. That has a negative connotation and a positive one. Negatively, to be separate from sin. God is sinless. God is separate from sin. Positively, holiness means to be consecrated to God. Or you could say dedicated to God. Or you could say conformed to Christ. To be God-like. Now in both Testaments, in both languages, there is a great emphasis on what the Bible would call inward, moral, practical holiness. Old Testament maybe indeed has a little more emphasis on ritual holiness and moral holiness. The inward, the New Testament, a little more emphasis on inward transforming holiness, but both emphases are in both Testaments. Now the interesting thing that the Bible does is when it speaks of holiness, it always uses God himself as the paradigm. God is the Holy One. God is called the Holy One more than he is called in his names by any other attribute. The holiness of God is the backdrop as well as the essence of all that the Bible has to say about God. Every attribute of God is holy. His justice is holy justice. His wisdom is holy wisdom. His love is holy love. His grace is holy grace. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The angels of heaven say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. God is holy. Holiness is his permanent crown, his permanent glory, his abiding beauty. Jonathan Edwards said, holiness is more than an attribute of God. It is the sum of all his attributes, the outshining of all that God is. And so this teaches us two important things. It teaches us in the first place that God is separate from all sin. That God has an apartness, if you will, from all uncleanness and all evil. There is in God a complete absence of all impurity. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. So we can never think to have a relationship with God. This is the second thing. Without a sacrifice for sin. Without a substitutionary 
atoning sacrifice for sin. Because God cannot negotiate with us about sin. Now, this is very hard to get into our heads because we're so busy trying to make God in our image rather than seem, trying to be made in his image that we have a hard time grasping this concept. But let me try to explain it to you it's, so a boy or girl could understand it, a little child. You see, when we deal with other people, we recognize we're all sinners. Someone comes to you and says, you know, I'm really sorry I treated you this way yesterday. And you say, oh, don't worry about it. I forgive you. You know, I'm a sinner too. God can't do that. So all these millions and millions of people, and we may well be one of them, at least in our inner heart, if we don't admit it outwardly, all these millions of people who negotiate with God like that and say things like this, I know, Lord, this is wrong, but you know you can't be perfect all the time. You can't be righteous over much. God will forgive me anyway. You know, God's not going to send me to hell. I'm better than my neighbor. That's all hogwash. God demands absolute perfection. You can't enter into heaven without being perfect. God cannot look sin through the fingers, said one of the minor prophets. No unholy thing can enter into heaven. The only way for you and for me to be saved, since we're all sinners to begin with, is that some sinless being would come along who's got infinite value to satisfy the infinite holiness of an infinite God, so that being must be infinite God himself, who at the same time is real man and can satisfy in our nature by living a perfect life. There's no other way to find God, to be reconciled with God, than to have that being suffer for our sin and bring in perfect obedience on our behalf so that God can look at us in and through him, and of course his name is Jesus, and say, I can justify you for Jesus' sake. So we need a perfectly holy, infinitely holy being to stand in our place, to be our mediator, for God to look upon us in mercy. But now the amazing thing is that God then turns around and says, if I save you through my son, my perfect son, through his perfect obedience, I want you to grow and grow and grow and becoming like him in his holiness. Not to save you. You're saved only by the blood of Jesus. But because those whom I save, I will make fit for heaven and I will increasingly make them like me so that they will become holy like me. Hence, be ye holy as I am holy. Now, this holiness that God demands, this call to holiness, is therefore a whole holiness, a complete holiness, a, a comprehensive holiness. A holiness that must impinge every area of our lives. 
if I had a chalkboard here or a whiteboard, I would, I would draw two circles and picture this in your mind. And, and both circles, cut it into eight pieces like a pie, eight pieces of a pie. Many people think that Christianity is simply taking one slice of the pie and saying, that's my holiness, that's my religion, that's my Sunday Christianity. I'm not going to let that interfere with my relationships, my friends, which is another piece of the pie, my hobbies, which is another piece of the pie, my work life, another piece of the pie. So my religion becomes one-eighth of my life, so to speak. But that's not the biblical idea of holiness. The biblical idea of holiness is that as you divide the pie into eight pieces, you make a huge circle in the very center of the pie that almost encompasses the whole pie, as it were, and that circle touches every piece, the basics, the foundation of every piece, and that circle is the call to holiness. I'm called to be holy in my relationship with my hobbies, my relationship with my free time and my reading material. I'm called to be holy in my friendships. I'm called to be holy as a father, as a mother, as a child. I'm called to be holy in my work. I'm called to be holy in every area of my life. That is not legalism. That is biblical cultivation of holiness. And so I'm called to be holy in privacy with God, in the confidentiality of my home, in the competitiveness of my occupation, in the pleasures of social friendship, in relation with my unevangelized neighbors, and in relationship to the world's hungry and unemployed, as well as in Sunday worship. Horatius Bonar puts it this way. Holiness extends to every part of our persons, fills up our being, spreads over our life, influences everything we are or do or think or speak or plan, small or great, outward or inward, negative or positive, our loving, our hating, our sorrowing, our rejoicing, our complaining, our recreations, our business, our friendships, our relationships, our silence, our speech, our reading, our writing, our going out, our coming in, our whole man and every movement of spirit, soul and body. Is called to be holy, just as we've just sung. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. So holiness, the call to holiness, is a daily, it's an hourly, it's a moment-by-moment, minute-by-minute task. And so holiness is something that is essentially inward, and it spills out of my life, outward, into every facet of my life. If I have an inward relationship with God, I want to be holy. I want to reflect Him. I want to image Him also in the world. That's the call to holiness. Now, who is sufficient for these things? If we look at ourselves only, it's, it's hopeless. Well, Christ is sufficient and only Christ. And therefore, Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.30, is our sanctification. He's our source of holiness. He's our help to holiness. He's our essence of holiness. He's our strength for holiness. Just as we go to him for justification to be made right with God, we must go to him for sanctification to remain right with God and to grow in our relationship with him. So once we have a right status with God, we're justified by the blood of Jesus and we embrace that by faith. Once we have that right status before God, we also at the same time have a principle of holiness put in us by the same Jesus, and we then must live out our lives 
and grow in this condition of holiness. So that a Christian who's called to be holy, who has a principle of holiness, must then exercise that holiness. So my status does not mean that I've yet reached a holy, sanctified condition. They call that definitive holiness. My status, when I'm born again, when I'm justified, I'm definitively made holy. I made a new creation. But I must now have that worked out in my daily condition. And that's where the struggle comes in. And the battles and and the sometimes losing of the skirmishes and the defeats as I struggle onward in the way of holiness. Luther explained it in his well-known expression, Simo Justus et peccator. I'm at once righteous and yet a sinner. I'm at once righteous in Christ, sanctified in Christ, and still I'm sinful. The new nature and the old nature and a tug of war against each other within me. That's the struggle. And we are called then to be in our lives, what we are definitively, to act like Christians, to be Christians, to be holy, to put away the works of darkness, to clothe ourselves with the works of light. We're called to do that, recognizing it's a struggle to do so. So holiness then is something that I both have in Christ, before God, in my status, And it's something I must cultivate, that's what we're talking about in this talk, through the strength of Christ in my daily walk of life. So I'm called to be in life what I already am in principle by grace. Now, what is that? What must we cultivate? Well, three things. First, I must cultivate an imitation of the character of Jehovah. An imitation of the character of Jehovah. Be ye holy, for I am holy. You see, the holiness of God himself must be our foremost stimulus to cultivate holy living. I'm to be like my Father in heaven in terms, that is, of his communicable attributes, able to be communicated attributes. You don't have to be like him in his incommunicable attributes, in his eternality, and his omniscience. I'm to be like him in his knowledge. I'm to be like him in his, in, his, in his holiness. I'm to be like him in his love. I'm to be like him in his grace. So I'm to strive to think God's thoughts after him through his word, to be of one mind with him, and to live and act as God himself would have me to do, to live and act as God would. So that's my calling. I have a habit when I say goodbye to my children in the morning, sort of a teasing way I say to them, now don't do anything I wouldn't do today. My 16-year-old daughter said to me the other day when she left for school, she preempted me. She said, don't do anything I wouldn't do today. But you know, that's how we should live as Christians. Lord, guard my thoughts, guard my, guard my lips, guard my actions today that I wouldn't do anything that, that Jesus wouldn't do. Help me to be more like my Father in heaven. Stephen Sharnock, listen to him. Great Puritan. 
The prime way of honoring God is to be like God. We do not so glorify God by our elevated admirations or our eloquent expressions or our pompous services for him as we do when we aspire to conversing with him with unstained spirits and to live to him by living like him. Secondly, conformity to the image of Christ. Imitation of the character of the Father Secondly, conformity to the image of his son. This is a favorite Pauline metaphor. Of course, you know the famous passage in Philippians 2, that this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, humbled himself to the death of the cross. Jesus was willing to give up his rights, to obey God and to serve sinners. And Paul says, if you would be holy, be like-minded. So Christ is the fountain of holiness. Christ is the fountain and the path of holiness. And we don't need to seek any other path but the path of being like him. I love the advice of Augustine, the early church father, who said, it is better to limp on this path than to run outside of this path. And I love the advice of John Calvin who said, set Christ always before you as a mirror of your sanctification and then ask for grace to mirror him in his image. Trust Christ to make you like Christ. Martin Luther once wrote one of the most profound sentences I've ever read in my life. This is what it says. Christ for you equals justification. Christ in you equals sanctification. Maybe Paul put it best of all. He said it simply. Christ is all and in all. And that's true in our holiness as well. Conform. Seek grace to conform to his image. Thirdly, submission to the mind of the Holy Spirit. Submission to the mind of the Holy Spirit. You know, in Romans 8, what does Paul do? At the beginning of that chapter, he divides people into two categories. Those who let themselves be controlled by their sinful natures and those who follow after the Spirit. The carnally minded and those who mind the things of the Spirit. And basically he says that Christians, those who aren't backsliding, are, Christ, are people who are minding the things of the Spirit. They want to, they want to submit to the word of God, which is the mind of the Spirit. So they want to live their whole lives in submission to the Bible. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Saturate yourself, fill yourself with the word of God, the mind of the Spirit. And live like that. Cultivate that. Well, that's the what. That's the what we must cultivate. To be like the Father, like the Son, like the Spirit. Now, how do you do that? 
Well, Peter says, by all manner of conversation, by your whole way of life, using the means that God has provided to cultivate holiness. John Owen said, If thou wouldst mean to make thyself more holy, enlarge the regular means of grace in thy life and look not to the extraordinary. What does he mean? He means the way to grow in holiness is to use God's ordinary means that he's provided. When my dad first took me, my dad was a carpenter, first took me to work with him. I was 13 years old, the first summer. And uh, he did something really rather strange, I thought at first, but later I understood it better. We got at the job site. He took a hammer and a saw and he put them out uh, on the little horses and he said, now look, he said, you don't use a saw to nail home this nail. The saw wasn't designed for that. The saw was designed to cut a board. And you don't use this hammer to saw a board. You use a hammer to hammer home the nail. And you know, so often in the Christian life, we're using hammers to try to saw boards. We spend half of our time in front of an internet program or, or surfing the internet or reading newspapers or other secular material, and we expect to grow in holiness. <laughs> Instead of filling our minds with good things and pure things and holy things, well, my friend, if you fill your minds with junk, what are you going to get? Junk. So what, 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 what we need to understand is it's very important. It's not legalism, but it's a reflective attitude of gratitude that we use the means God has provided us to be the kind of Christians we're called to be. Now, what are those means? Well, let me give you six of them real quickly. Number one, know and love the Scriptures. Know and love the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit is the master teacher, and He teaches us through the Scriptures. You can't be holy Christians when you ignore the love letter God has sent you in the Bible. A couple years ago, one of my oldest elders, he's in mid-80s, and he, he brought me a letter he found when he was moving, that my father had written, just after my father was converted in the 20s. And uh, he said, I thought you might like to see this. I said, like to see this? The whole letter was spiritual about how my father was led to Christ. I read that letter with such delight. This is my father's handwriting. You know, this is the way we should read the Bible. This is my father's handwriting. And it's a letter to me. Thomas Watson said, what is the scripture but God's long letter to thee? Read it. Cherish it. Love it. And just because it's available every day, don't neglect it. You see, that's our danger. We, we take everything for granted. Precious things for granted. I was saying to Mr. Cole on the way to the site today that 
A study has been done recently of people who use their boats in Florida and people who use their boats in Michigan. And do you know that in Michigan you can only use a boat like three months a year, right? Or maybe three and a half. In Florida you can use it 12 months a year and it's almost always sunshiny. And people in their boat use their boats twice as much in Michigan as they do in Florida. Because there are only so many days to use it. When it's a sunny day, people quickly call in sick or something and, and they go out and use their boat. In Florida, they say, well, I, we got another sunny day coming anyway. Don't use their boat. That's what you can do with a Bible. You notice how people in persecuted countries use the Bible? They cherish one page. We have the whole Bible. We let it gather dust. Every day we should be in the Word. Every day we should be reading our Father's love letter to us. Would you be holy? Would you re- do you really want to be holy? Know and search and love and live and memorize and meditate upon the Bible and compare Scripture with Scripture. Number two, use the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper diligently to strengthen your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God's sacraments complement His Word. They buttress His Word. They both point us away from ourselves. Each sign, the water, the bread, the wine, directs us to believe in Jesus and his blood and his sacrifice on the cross. They are spurs to Christ-likeness and and holiness. Now, grace received through the sacraments is not different, of course, than grace received through the word. Both convey the same Christ. But as the Puritan Robert Bruce put it, while we do not get a better Christ in the sacraments than we do in the word, there are times when we get Christ better. So use the sacraments conscientiously. Don't think about the adult or if you're in a church that practices paedo-communion or paedo-baptism, don't think about the baby, but think about what God is doing through the sacrament, signifying and sealing as surely as that person either descends into the water or has the water sprinkled, whatever background you're from. As surely as that happens, so surely all the sins of all those people are washed away in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the corporate dimension and then apply it to yourself, you see. And glean something from the sacraments for your own holiness. Number three. Have a right view of what it means to be a Christian. That's a means in itself, you see. To regard yourself as dead to the dominion of sin and is alive to God in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 6.11. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, to realize this is to take away from us that old sense of hopelessness which we've all known and felt because of the terrible power of sin. I can say to myself that not only am I no longer under the dominion of sin, but I'm under the dominion of another power that nothing can frustrate, the power of grace. You see, when I'm tempted to sin, I ought to think, which to God I always did, but I ought to think, I've got no business doing that. I'm a Christian. I've been made dead unto sin and alive to God. What in the world am I doing thinking about entering into sin? Like Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God who's done nothing but treat me well? 
I was in Wales last year, talked to an 85-year-old lady who had three robbers come into her home. And they started taking everything. They tied her up, put a, put, a, put a band around her face, and they tied her to the chair. And, and they started taking her grandmother, her great-grandmother's china, and putting it in boxes, and she could hear them doing it. And she, she said, you men, you've got no business being in this house. God will cause you to answer for it on the day of judgment. And one of the young men sat down beside her and started to weep. And the other two tried to pull him. And the net result of the whole thing was they forgot all about the china. And they ended up leaving the house. And I thought, you know, that's, that's what we should do as a Christian. As soon as, as soon as sin crosses the threshold of our door, we ought to shout out, Lord, help me. I've got no business sinning. Sin is a foreign intruder. I've been made a new creation. Be gone, sin. Be gone, Satan. I'm dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Number four, pray and work in dependence on God for holiness. Pray and work. That's the old Reformation motto, ora et labora. Pray and work. If you pray without working, it's like being in, a con- being in a rowboat and you've got two oars and you just use one oar. You're praying, you're praying, you're praying, you just go in circles. If you just do work and you forget to pray and do your daily devotions, you're going in circles the other way. Working, 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 trying to be holy, trying to be holy, trying to be holy. There you go. But if you use both, you pray and you work. You go forward to your destination. John Bunyan said there's more to do than pray. But you cannot do more than pray until you prayed. So you pray and you work. You pray and you work. You pray and you work. Number five, flee worldliness. Flee worldliness like the plague. John Bunyan said, the world is like a visitor that stands on your doorstep and he rings your doorbell and you open the doorbell. And if you see the world dressed up as an enticements of sin and you close the door immediately, you haven't sinned. You haven't sinned. But if you bring him into your living room and you sit down and you meditate with him and you converse and you fellowship, you engage in sin. And so what we need to do is we need to take seriously what Paul says in Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report, think on these things. Don't let sin in the door. Stop it right at the threshold. Shut the door. Ralph Erskine, the Scottish divine, said, fight or flight, fight or flight, do one or the other. If you're strong in an area, go ahead and fight. If you're weak in that area, flee. If you're a recovering alcoholic, God hasn't called you to be an evangelist in a bar. You see, you are to flee. God calls upon you to be an evangelist in a bar and you're not tempted by alcohol and you're strong in that area. Maybe God's calling you to reach out to people. 
who are coming out of the bars. But the point is, you never cozy up with sin. You never flirt with sin. You never minimize sin. You don't desensitize your conscience. You flee forms of sinful worldliness. Today, so many people are so worried about legalism that they fall into antinomianism. They forget that the Christian lives a separate lifestyle. And they put everything under the umbrella of Christian liberty. I can do whatever I want as a Christian. But you know what? You're not jealous of those people, are you? You don't sense a close walk with God, do you? Your lives are saturated with worldly activity. And they don't grow in holiness. Number six. Grow through the communion of saints. Seek fellowship in the church. Associate with mentors in holiness. Yes, we should have friends outside the church with, with the purpose of evangelizing them. Of course. But association begets assimilation. And what I love to do is I love to go to people who are far more holy than me. And I pick them out in my church. My most holy people, as far as I can tell. People are filled with love for Jesus. And I go visit them. I let their salty conversation rub off on me. And they minister to me more than I minister to them. I come away strengthened. Seek mentors in holiness. Don't be isolated Christians. God hasn't made us to be lone rangers. You know the old story about the man who didn't think he really had to come to church, didn't really have to have fellowship. The pastor went over to visit him, sat down beside him, didn't say a word to him. And the guy knew the pastor was coming over to, to ball him out for not coming to church. He's looking at this pastor, not saying a word. The only thing that they heard was the fire going. Finally, the pastor reached up and he took the tong out and he took one coal from that fire and he moved it over one foot. Let it sit there all by itself. Put the instrument back, sat down, didn't say a word. He just watched the coal. About two minutes later, the coal burned out, got cold. The guy's sitting there looking at that coal. Suddenly he got the message. He said, Pastor, you don't have to say anything. I'll be back in church. You see, we need each other. We don't only need the word coming. That's important. But we need each other. Our fellowship. Strengthen each other in the Lord Jesus Christ. I need you to say to me, dear brother, how are things going in your spiritual life? And you need me to say that to you. We need to be close enough to each other to do that as we establish relationships. Seventhly, we need to make more use of the preached word. On Sundays, yes. On weekdays, yes. You know what one of the best means of grace is for me? 
was driving around town, going to visit people in the hospital, but while I'm driving around town, I'm not listening to the, all the junk on the radio. I'm listening to good sermons, listening to great preachers. I've had times I've had to pull my car off the side of the road and just weep because God has spoken to me through, the, through, through that tape, through that CD. Get great preachers and use them. Use their tapes. Use their sermons. Feed off the living word. That's God's primary means of grace anyway. It's how he converts people. It's how he keeps them converted. We ought to make far more use of preaching. And when you're in church, take good notes. Come home. Talk to your children about them. Speak over the sermon. Speak about the sermon with your own family, with friends. Speak about it through the week. Let it sink in. Let it change your life. Finally, number eight, live present tense, total commitment to God. Don't fall prey to the one more time syndrome. One more time, I'll engage in this. Or one more time, I'll postpone obedience. No, tomorrow's holiness is today's impurity. Tomorrow's faith is today's unbelief. These are the means to use. Looking to Jesus for strength and independency upon him. Well, let me conclude by just giving you a couple of quick encouragements for holiness. Number one, God has called you to holiness for your good and his glory. God has called you to holiness for your good and his glory. Whatever God calls you to do, you ought to say, that's enough. Lord, that's all I need. You've called me to do it. That's all I need. It's got to be for my good. And it's got to be for your glory. For God has not called us unto uncleanness, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7, but unto holiness. Holiness glorifies the God we love. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, holiness makes most for God's honor. Secondly, holiness makes us resemble God. It helps us keep our integrity. It helps the world watch us and say, you know, there is something to Christianity after all. That's powerful. Genuine holiness speaks volumes, even to the world. It gives vitality, it gives purpose, it gives meaning, it gives direction to daily living. Thirdly, holiness ought to encourage us because it gives evidence of our justification and our election. How do you know you're elect? Well, the result, says Peter, we're elect because we're sprinkled with the blood of Christ unto obedience and holiness. Our election is evidence, or rather our holiness is evidence of our election. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Now, there's a tricky thing about this, I grant you. I like to compare it to sheep. When I was in Scotland once, I, I did a conference and I was at a, at a minister's home and there were sheep all over the yard. And I saw right behind the ear, there's green, and there's brown, there's blue, depending on the, on the individual sheep. And I said... Is it really true that the shepherd can come along and one shepherd will call all the brown sheep out when they hear his voice and, the, and all the brown sheep only will go out and hear his voice? And 
And, and the blue shepherd will come along and he'll call the sheep and only they will go out. And, and he said, yeah, it's actually true. It's actually true. But he said the tricky thing is that each individual sheep can't see, can't see his own mark. He just has to respond in obedience to the call of the shepherd. And that's the tricky thing about sanctification. People that think they're so holy, they can see all their holiness. Look, I'm holy here, I'm holy there. Well, they forget that God's people often can't see their own maturity or their own holiness at all. Can't see their own earmark. Really humble people don't recognize their humility, right? As soon as you recognize your humility, you've lost it. It's like the lady to whom John Newton sent his sermon about the, 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 the blade, the ear, and the full corn in the air and compared it to beginners in grace, young men in grace, and fathers in grace. And she wrote back and said, it's a wonderful sermon. I'm so glad to know that I'm a father in grace. And Newton wrote back and said, you know, I forgot to say one thing at the end of that sermon, that those who are fathers in grace never recognize themselves to be such. You see, when we're really sanctified, we're humble people. And we just want to respond to the master's voice. And so even though we can't see it, the beauty is that others can see it. I remember being 17 years old, having a friend who, who was so grieving, a godly, godly young man. He was so grieving over his lack of sanctification. We were walking together in the basement of our home. He was just grieving about it. He, said, ah. he went up against the pillar and he said, oh, if only I could be holy. I said, brother, you are far more holy than I am. I said, I wish I had your holiness. And he turned around and looked at me and said, what, you? I see holiness in you. I said, you do? You see holiness in me? Well, I see it in you. You see, the sheep see each other's earmark, but they don't see their own. Sanctification visualizes our election to other people. And then remember, holiness is essential for your effective service to God. Paul joins holiness and usefulness together. He says, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Holy living preaches reality, preaches usefulness. It displays the beauty of religion. It gives credibility to witness and to evangelism. And finally, holiness fits us for heaven. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue holiness, cultivate holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. John Owen put it this way, There's no imagination so wherewith a man is besotted or so foolish or so pernicious as this, that persons not sanctified, not purified, not made holy in their life should afterwards be taken into that state of blessedness which consists in the holy enjoyment of God. Holiness is indeed perfected in heaven, but the beginning of it is invariably confined to this world. God leads none to heaven, but whom he sanctifies on the earth. You see, friends, if we're caught up with this world, we're not ready for the next. Let us pray, then, that God would help us to cultivate holiness in the fear of God, that we would grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us not see it as something full of drudgery, but something full of excitement and joy. Holiness is not a burden. Holiness is a joy for the believer.
There's the joy of fellowship with God, which is more than this world can ever offer. There's the joy of abiding assurance as we walk with God, which gives meaning and value to life. There's a joy of the eternal gracious reward of being with Jesus forever. Oh, Lord, please help us, we must pray, to put away indwelling sin and outcropping sin. And let us find our joy in holiness. Martin Luther said, sin is in us like a man's beard. We shave it off every morning and we think we're done with it. By the end of the day, we see it cropping out again. We need to repent again. But we've got to keep on shaving. And pray God to root it out and cast it away. Oh God, cleanse me. Help me in this battle against holiness. Help me to be encouraged in it, not discouraged. Help me to remember I have the best of generals, Jesus Christ with the best of internal advocates, the Holy Spirit, with the best of assurances, the promises of God, and with the best of results, gracious, everlasting glory. Yes, one day, one day, God will call his people, made holy by the blood of Jesus, to himself. One day the battle shall be over, and the victory shall be won. One day I shall be with Jesus forever in holiness. Holiness is essential. But do remember, holiness is not a list. Holiness is a life. It's a life in Jesus and out of Jesus and unto Jesus and through Jesus would you be holy? Begin with Christ. Would you abide holy? Abide in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, forgive us for all our unholiness. Forgive us for our indifference towards so many of the means and uses of grace. Forgive us for our sloppy Christian living. Help us to be more dedicated to thee, more consecrated, more separated from sin, more longing for thy glory and thy beauty and thy fellowship, and more loving one to another. Make us holy, keep us holy by the blood and the intercession and the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. May I just say a quick word before we take a break on, on, on the books? Uh, several of you have been asking questions and I should have said something before, but um, Reformation Heritage Books is a book ministry that we have. It's nonprofit, that's why all our prices are 30 to 50% off. It's a discount rehouse uh, uh, house, as it were. And we carry 3,000 titles from other publishers, and we do three titles ourselves each month. So help yourself to a catalog, and feel free to sign up, and we'll send you four catalogs a year, one major catalog, 
and three supplements. And we're also available on the web at www.heritagebooks.org. And what we are trying to do is we're trying to give you a place to go where you can say, here's a book publisher whose every book is reliable. All 3,000 of these books are biblical and reformed. If you ever find one that isn't, you let me know, we'll pull it off the list immediately. So we want to be a reliable book guide for you. And this is another means of grace. I should have said something about this actually too, to help you grow in grace. Good, reading good literature, it will, it will greatly help you. So pick up uh, the catalog, Reformation Heritage Books, the little, the little insert, the last supplement called Tola Lega, take up and read after Augustine, of course. And the Banner of Sovereign Grace Truth is also free. That's our family periodical that we, uh, that we give out that caters to children, teenagers, adults, gives you book reviews each month of all the new books coming out, and also has one or two um, more challenging articles and a meditation and so on. Uh, let me also say a little bit about a couple of books. If you have kids that are 10 to 18 years old, we've written a book called Reformation Heroes. The goal is to try to replace the Hollywood heroes and the sports heroes with better heroes, real heroes. The lives of 40 Reformation men. After we published the book, we realized to our astonishment that this book is equally suitable for adults because many adults do not know who Martin Bucer is and Henry Bullinger and Johannes Ocolampadius and other great Reformation heroes like that. So do pick up this book for yourselves, for your children, for your grandchildren. It's a coffee table book with fresh artwork uh, throughout, and it's only $18, a discount price. Living for God's Glory is a book that uh, I've just come out with through, through the R.C. Sproul, just published it through his Reformation Trust. It tries to show that Calvinism is warm, not cold, it's intimate, not distant, it's comprehensive, not narrow. And it looks at 28 different subjects in 28 chapters. Philosophical Calvinism, practical Calvinism, doctrinal Calvinism, historical Calvinism, experiential Calvinism, etc. In the areas where I might, might not be so strong, I've, I've pulled in other writers like Sinclair Ferguson to write a chapter, or, uh, or Derek Thomas, Michael Haken, you had here, I, I know, he wrote a chapter too and the preface, and the goal is to shore you up in your own convictions about Calvinism as being biblical, as well as to hand it to your neighbor who wants something more than a little pamphlet on the five points, who really wants to understand what Calvinism is, that it's life comprehensive. Okay, for this conference price only, our normal discount price in this book is 18, we're giving it to you for 50% off, $12. Um, just for only if you take it today. Meet the Puritans. This is a book that we came out with. It's actually our, our best-selling book. Um, it has a life story of all 150 Puritans that have been reprinted in the last 50 years since the resurgence of Puritan literature that began in 1957. It tells it in a lay people's language level, yet accurate, scholarly accurate. And then it gives you a summary of all 700 Puritan titles that have been reprinted in the last 50 years, including 75 pages in the back for the Scottish Puritans and 75 for the, for the so-called Puritans of the Dutch, Second Ref Dutch Further Reformation. Um, so it's a handbook 
to help guide you in buying Puritan books, but it's also what most people are using it for is they're reading one life story every night for a daily devotional. All right, those are a few books for now. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful break. As you exit down the hall here, you will find uh, both the periodicals and the books in the book room on your left down. And keep on going down to the refreshments down at the other end of the hall. We'll see you back in a half hour starting promptly. I should also say to answer a lot of questions, we take checks, we take MasterCard, we take cash.